So kind of recall with me in chapter 1, we saw God tell the prophet Jonah to travel from Israel northeast to the Assyrian city of Nineveh. It was a pagan city. It was a wicked city. God told Jonah to go to speak uh, to these people a word that he would give to them to turn from their evil or he was going to destroy them, says the Lord. Now, the prophets were God's messengers. This is a lot of review here. And as a prophet, it was Jonah's job to speak to people on behalf of God. And this was the message. Imagine how fun this was. Turn or burn, (laughs) Nineveh. This was essentially what God asked Jonah. He commanded Jonah to tell the Ninevites. However, for those who might be unfamiliar with the historical landscape uh, surrounding this story, around this same time, God was also speaking to Jonah's people, the Israelites, through another prophet named Hosea. And according to the word of the Lord spoken through Hosea, in the not too distant future, the people of Nineveh would actually rise up against the people of Israel and lead them off into exile. The very people that God was telling Jonah to go and minister to were the same people who would soon rise up against Israel. We, I, I compared it to this last week, but imagine a Jew in the early 1930s being told by God to go and minister to the Nazis, knowing full well what was about to happen with the rise of the Third Reich. Jonah is so disturbed, he is so angered by God's assignment to him that he straight up disobeys. He sails to not Nineveh. He goes in the opposite direction toward Tarshish on the western Mediterranean Sea. But what we learned in chapter 1, if you'll just remember with me, is that after God sends a storm to stop the ship that Jonah is sailing on. And after God appoints a giant fish to come and swallow Jonah in order to rescue him from drowning, what we learn is that in God's mysterious mercy, he uses whatever is necessary. Even a, a nearly shipwrecked boat, even a giant hungry fish, he, God, uses whatever is necessary to bring his people back to himself. And in chapter 2, we saw Jonah actually come to grips with this truth, didn't we? When, when, when Jonah's anger and disobedience toward God turned into glad-hearted prayer and repentance. We, we examined Jonah's prayer in chapter 2 and we learned a thing or two about the desperate nature of his prayer. We talked about the desperation of prayer, remember? The, the uh, determination of prayer, the deliverance of prayer. And we learned that like more than Jonah's deliverance from the belly of the fish, which did end up happening at the end of chapter 2, we learned that Jonah was delivered, at least temporarily, from a hard and disobedient heart. That was God's great deliverance with the fish. In chapter 3, we saw then a recommissioned Jonah finally doing what God had commanded him to do in the first place. From Joppa to Assyria to Nineveh was about 500 miles. So about a month's journey later, Jonah entered the huge pagan city of Nineveh, as we saw last week. It was a city that would have required three days had Jonah attempted to preach in all of its major public squares. But as we read last week in chapter 3, it only took one single stop. One sermon 
from Jonah. It took five Hebrew words out of Jonah's mouth to the Ninevites on behalf of God that translate this, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That one single sentence was enough to render an entire city of over 120,000 murderous, idolatrous, and wicked people, everyone from the king and all of his nobles all the way down to the cows and goats, one sentence to bulldoze an entire city into wholesale revival. The word of the Lord is power. They fasted. They performed acts of penance. Every citizen of Nineveh called out to the Lord for forgiveness. And what we learn is that even through the mouth of a reluctant and imperfect messenger such as Jonah, the perfect and infallible word of God is mighty to save, is it not? Hallelujah. Oh, how God desires, and we, 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 we touched on this last week, He desires that we, each of us, each of us believers would be emboldened by the power of the gospel we possess. The power of His good news to the nations. The power of the message, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like Jonah, we're all imperfect messengers. That's not an excuse. That's a reality. But that does not mean that any of us, that God is okay with any of us sitting on the bench. We touched on this last week. If you are a spirit-indwelled gospel recipient, if you're a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, and you can utter these words, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You are a vessel through whom God can save lost people. We've got to see this. Now as we turn our attention to the fourth and final chapter of this story, we see our main character, our guy, Jonah. He comes back into the spotlight and all is not well with him. So he he may have survived a giant fish. He may have obediently declared the word of the Lord to the Ninevites. He may have even witnessed the unfettered power of God bring an entire city to its knees. But in Jonah's heart, he is still very much swallowed up and lost at the bottom of the sea. All around him in the city of Nineveh, men and women and children are crying out to God for forgiveness and God is granting it to them. They are receiving mercy in the droves. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly are the first words of our passage this morning. Would you follow along as I continue reading? But it displeased Jonah exceedingly and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? This is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me. For it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? 
Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he should, he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. <laughs> But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he, Jonah, said, Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? It's a question, so I have cattle. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God the Father, We ask, as we always do, that by God the Holy Spirit, you would open our eyes and ears and hearts to receive what you are saying to us, even though it may seem a strange word. Oh God, it is packed with all of the power of heaven. We believe this. We ask these things in the name of Jesus, God the Son. Amen. What a strange passage. We have a plant, we have a worm, and we have also much cattle. As Jonah exits the repentant city of Nineveh in verse 1, note his exceeding displeasure. He, if I might say so, is suicidally angry. Now put that in your pockets and I'll put it in mine because after we survey a couple of main points of the story, we're going to zero in on the reason and the antidote for Jonah's anger, which is really the big theme in chapter 4. Jonah's anger is really the big idea that's going on. And my message today is uncomfortably different than I uh, and you will be used to. I am feeling led to, again, survey really the entirety of what we have seen and to, to, to go verse by verse in a, in a teaching sort of sense. And at the very end, I have one point that really summarizes what it is I believe we are seeing in chapter 4 and thus what we are seeing in the story as a whole. So bear with me. Um, this is different for me, the way I'm going to go about doing this. So just hang on tight. Hold on to Jonah's anger, his exceeding displeasure. That is key. 
So let's go back to the text. As Jonah exits the repentant city of Nineveh, he's exceedingly displeased. And in verse 2, he reveals the source of his displeasure, as well as the reason why he disobeyed God in the first place. He didn't want to preach the word of God to the Ninevites, not because of what he knew about the Ninevites, but because of what he knew about God. Verse 2, Jonah quotes from Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. And he relents of disaster. Jonah had the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. He knew this text. He knew it to be true. Which is precisely why he did not want to go to Nineveh. Because he knew God would forgive them. He knew that God would not destroy them. Jonah wasn't avoiding Nineveh because he was afraid of what they might do to him. He's proven in, in, in nearly every chapter that he's not afraid to die. He, he's welcoming it. But in Jonah's eyes, in Jonah's eyes, obedience to God felt like betrayal to his own people. See, in Jonah's perspective, he was now an accomplice in the pardoning and the preservation of his enemies, of his nation's enemies. Essentially, he had helped God by the proclamation of God's word that brought about revival in Nineveh. Essentially, he had helped God rescue the very people that would soon rise up against his own and lead them off into exile. Do we see the tortured mind? He's angry with the Ninevites. He's angry with himself. He's angry with God. And after asking God to take his life in verse 3, God responds in 4 with the first of three questions. Do you do well to be angry? The NIV renders that. Is it right for you, Jonah, to be angry? Do you have good reason to be angry? I was reflecting over this passage with our worship leader, Ed Tarakis, and this week he texted me and said, you know, it's funny, when God starts asking questions, we're in trouble. He's right. In verse 5, we see Jonah's anger continue to bubble. It starts to play tricks with his head. See, somehow, even after witnessing God's reviving power at work in the citizens of Nineveh, he leaves the city he, he, with the hope that there's still a chance that in 40 days, God's going to destroy the city like he'd threatened, like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. He's in denial. He, he, he's, he's outside looking down upon the city thinking, there's still hope that God's going to scorch this town. Now, in a rather sadistic move, Jonah builds himself a booth, a a little shelter to the east with a roof that would have been likely made from branches and he, he watches and he waits and he hopes and he prays for thunder and lightning and brimstone to rain down. In the heat of the day, the branches on Jonah's roof would have withered. He would have been fully exposed to the burning sun. And in verse 6, in a remarkable moment of God's compassion, God demonstrates yet again his sovereignty over all creation, and he appoints a tall plant to grow up and over Jonah's head to shade him. How merciful. And all of a sudden, we see Jonah's exceeding displeasure melt away, don't we? 
all of a sudden coming into the scene is exceeding pleasure and gladness and joy, similar to the way he felt when he was being rescued by the fish. Do we remember? So although this shade over his head is short-lived, because in verse 7, the next morning, God once again demonstrates his sovereignty over creatures, and he appoints the strangest of all things, a worm, to attack and kill the plant. If only Jonah had had a Brian Hodge or a Tim Fry, a plant pathologist around. It's the nematodes. You need to get those out of there. And No. Then God appoints a scorching crosswind. Verse 8, the heat of the sun, the plants withered, the heat of the sun is now raining right down upon Jonah. Jonah looks down upon the city while he's burning there and the city is still repenting. They're still enjoying God's forgiveness and Jonah's anger skyrockets yet again. It overtakes him. Are we seeing a pattern here? A pattern of tremendous instability, of mental and emotional, even physical and spiritual instability. One commentator wrote, no other prophet in scripture experiences as many emotional fluctuations within so brief a narrative as our guy Jonah. He didn't write our guy, I put that in there. I mean, Jonah is a roller coaster. Can anyone resonate with that? Anger in chapter 1 for being called to do something he didn't want to do. Pleasure in chapter 2, being rescued by a huge fish. Anger at the beginning of chapter 4, because the Ninevites are repenting and God is relenting. And then pleasure because God gives him shade in the moment. Finally, raging anger again because the plant is taken away. Up, down, up, down, up, down. All because of the circumstances going on around him. This man's joy is so conditional. Which leads us to verse 8 again when Jonah cries out, Take my life, God. Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, angry enough to die. Now as we circle back to verses 10 and 11, we've kind of worked our way through our passage we could easily spend the remainder of our time dissecting how the plant was actually intended, essentially intended by God as a parable for Jonah. We've just done a series on the parables, so our minds ought to be kind of active on that. It it, it was an object lesson sent by God to expose Jonah's hard heart and all of the misprioritized value systems and contradictions that were hidden within his heart. I mean, how foolish. We have to see the folly and the contradiction of Jonah's reasoning. On one hand, he was angry with God for destroying an insignificant day-old plant, while on the other hand, he was absolutely furious with God for not destroying an entire city of living, breathing human beings who were lost in their moral bankruptcy who were blind in their sin. They were so blind, they couldn't even distinguish their right from their left hand. Jonah was not okay with the death of a dumb plant. But he was completely okay 
with the death of over 120,000 men, women, and children, and cattle. And the whole story ends in this really rather unusual way, does it not? It's open-ended. It's discomforting. What we're left with is a beautiful portrait of God who makes one thing very clear. If, If no other thing has been made clear to you in this book and in this passage, it is this. God desires to have pity on the pitiful. He desires to save the unsavable. His magnificent and mysterious mercy is is extended to whomever he sovereignly wills. He will show compassion to whomever he desires to show compassion. Jonah 2.9, salvation is of the Lord. We've got to take that away from this book and praise God for this. Because if we were to read through the remainder of the Old Testament... And into the New Testament, we would all of us learn that at one point in our lives, we were just like the Ninevites. Dead in our sins, blind in our sinful ways, and even the best behaved among us was ultimately unwilling to reach for the mercy of Christ because we didn't think we needed him. We thought we were good enough. Every one of us at some point in our lives has been or continues to be a Ninevite. So praise God for the beautiful portrait of his salvific mercy in this book. I take away from it that if God the Holy Spirit hadn't opened my eyes to see my depravity and my need for Christ, I would have never come to him. I'm a pretty moral guy. I have some pretty intense tattoos, but I'm a weakling and I'm very, I'm a good boy. <laughs> that's the truth of this, that's the, it's the beautiful truth of this passage. But what are we to make of the struggling prophet? And the remainder of our time, that's what we're going to look at. What are we to make of Jonah knowing what we know, knowing the historical landscape between the sworn enemy of Israel, the Assyrians, the Ninevites, and Israel, the impending exile that is coming. Hosea has already prophesied this wicked city is going to take part in ruining our city and our people. And Jonah is in this conundrum where he has been the mouthpiece for the Lord that brought them into forgiveness, but they're still coming for Israel. Knowing the impending exile of Israel, knowing Jonah's utter confusion and his exceeding displeasure, his near suicidal anger toward God, what in the world do we make of all of this? I, I'm going to try and help. Holy Spirit, help us to understand. When I was a freshman in high school, I played saxophone in the marching band. I was a woodwind. Uh, I wasn't as cool as the drumline guys, but uh, I went to a big public high school. It was a big marching band, and I'll never forget the months and months, it seemed, of practices on the scorching hot blacktop outside of our high school. Every day, we practiced, we marched in and out of each other, we crossed paths, we're turning right and then left and moving backwards, and I remember thinking to myself as I looked all around me, this is an utter mess. This is complete chaos. There is 
no way that what we are doing with each other and all around each other, there's no way this looks good or can turn out well. From my eye-level perspective, from my vantage point, there was no rhyme or reason to anything that was going on. No purpose, no point, just a bunch of mediocre musicians who had a lot of homework to do aimlessly and incoherently wandering in and out of each other. And to say that I was frustrated would be to put it lightly. Uh, Confused, yes, and flat out raging angry that I had stopped playing soccer to do that. Right? From my vantage point, there was, well, no, this is havoc. And that is precisely, I want to submit to you, what Jonah, Jonah's frame of mind concerning God's pardon of the Ninevites. From Jonah's perspective, and the catalyst for his instability, up, down, up, down, up, down, joy, anger, pleasure, displeasure. The reason is that Jonah's gaze was too firmly fixed on what he could see. From his own vantage point, he was trusting too much in what was seen. And among all of the things that we can and and will, hopefully by God's grace, take away from this book, is that we must learn as God's people to trust less in our own vantage point. Amen? In what we see, trusting less in what we see, while trusting more in the unseen, magnificent, mysterious mercy of God. See, it wasn't until I saw the footage from the perspective of my band director, way up high in a scissor lift, that all of a sudden, I went, oh my gosh. With this perspective, from up here, the chaos that I thought was ensuing down here from from eye level, it is a beautiful tapestry. I see grace, all perfection. I see goodness all over this picture. Now here's the point. Jonah already experienced his own parable, not the plant, the fish. Nineveh, if we were to dissect that Hebrew term Nineveh, it actually, at the very root of it, etymologically speaking, means fish town. They worshipped a fish god and a fish goddess. They were all about fish. What was happening is that a bigger fish, the fish nation, was going to come and swallow the Israelite nation, not to harm them, to help them. Anyone recall the book of Judges? When God would raise up enemy armies to come to his own people to bring just enough affliction that his people would come back to him and cry out for his goodness and his grace. What was happening in Jonah's life was a mirror image of what God was desiring to do with the people of Israel. Assyria was essentially going to be used to rescue the Jews. 
They had all gone astray, each one to his or her own way. They were blind. They were callous. They needed a merciful, mysterious wake-up call. And they were about to get it in the form of the Ninevites coming to usher them into exile, just like the fish gulped down Jonah and took him away for a time as well. We must learn, if Jonah could only have read his own book and seen from God's vantage point how differently our trials and tribulations, the things that we most question, God, how could you possibly use the pardon of the Ninevites for good? He says, just wait. It doesn't look like it from your vantage point, but I will work this out for your good. For the good of those who are called according to my purpose, I will do it. That is a promise that you and I can grip super tightly. That we can then look at texts like Proverbs 3, 5 that urge us to trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and to not lean on our own understanding. If there was one thing that might stabilize the family in here who just received a cancer diagnosis in one of their family members... If there was anything, any truth in all of Scripture that might stabilize us when we have unbelieving children in our household and we don't know when they're going to come home, so to speak. If there's one truth that that can stabilize us during tragedy and, and trial and job loss and marriage and financial crisis... When, re, when the re-emergence of past failures rise to the surface and, and hurts, oh my gosh, if there was one thing that we can take from the book of Jonah, if we were to read through the rest of Old Testament history and into the New, God works all of this out for the good of those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. We must learn To trust less in what is seen through our vantage point and trust more in what is not seen, namely this magnificent, mysterious mercy that we have spent four weeks dialing into. Because church, whatever it is that you are uniquely going through right now, your interpretation of what's going on is finite, it's limited at best. It is faulty. It's, it's off base at, at worst. You do not and I do not have the accurate interpretation of what is going on in our lives, which means that we must come back again and again to the plumb line for truth and the only accurate representation of our events that we have, the Word of God. We must come back to Scripture in the context of community that loves the Scriptures so that we can stir up one another in these seasons. Brother or sister, if you sense the Holy Spirit nudging you right now, let me confirm, keep your eyes on Jesus. Trust Him in this. And beyond our understanding... As we have sung this morning, He will somehow, in all of the mystery of of, of heaven, He will make this come together for your good. See, Jonah didn't have the book of Jonah, but he did have the book of Genesis. And in the book of Genesis, in chapter 50, one of my most favorite stories of all time is a man named Joseph. 
He gives, he's been given this really awesome multicolored coat from his dad. His brothers beat the tar out of him and then sell him into slavery. He goes to Potiphar's house. That doesn't go well. He rises up all the way to the second in command of Egypt. All of a sudden, in God's providence, the brothers and the father, Jacob, are in need. And they end up in Egypt. Help us, help us. They don't know who they're asking. They're asking the brother they, they sold into slavery. And guess what Joseph says to his brothers? What you intended for evil, God all along was intending for good to bring about the salvation of many. A drought in his father's homeland brought all of his brothers up to Egypt where the patriarchs then raised up the tribe of Israel who would then be sent out of Israel as a light into the nations. Jesus would come through Israel. Jonah had access to the book of Genesis. If we could go back and preach to Jonah, we would say, Jonah, though it looks like the turning of the Ninevites cannot work out for your good and the good of your family, trust God. When you cannot see his hand, trust his heart that he has promised good things. He has promised good things for you. Martin Luther said that the sin underneath all of our sins is to trust the lie of the serpent that we cannot trust the love and grace of Christ and must take matters into our own hands. Lucifer was the first to distrust. He was super unstable. Second to distrust were Adam and Eve thinking that somehow God's withholding from them the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not a wise move. And so they took it into their own hands to eat. Abraham and Sarah. Abraham told those dudes that Sarah was his sister. Do we remember, do we remember these stories of men and women not trusting in the unseen, but trusting only in what they see and taking matters into their own hands? But conversely, we read stories of Elijah and the prophets of Baal, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. We read stories of Jehoshaphat, right? The enemy armies are surrounding the tribe of Judah. They don't know what to do, but they put their eyes on God, and he confuses the enemy armies. Look at the witnesses that we have in Scripture that God is to be trusted, and we are not to lean on our own understanding. After Jonah, and I'll close with this, after Jonah, the better prophet came centuries later. Who am I speaking of? Jesus. Jesus, the better prophet, came to preach a message of repentance, just like Jonah, to watch much revival happen in the area of Galilee, down into Samaria, into Judah. He did so. And then as he was departing, he didn't leave the city like Jonah did to go out onto a hill to look down upon it in judgment, hoping that it would burn. Jesus did leave the city, but he went to a different hill not to look down upon it in judgment, but to die forward in mercy. On the cross, Jesus, the better Jonah, did what Jonah could not dream of doing, 
which was to trust the Father for the redemption of these sinful people that God in all of his good sovereignty would make all things come together for the good of those called according to the Father's purpose. If you're in Christ this morning, if you believe the good news that in your place Jesus came, he lived, he died, and he rose to life, and that was the only transaction needed for the salvation and forgiveness of your soul, you are a child of God. This promise falls upon you in full at this very moment. And so whatever it is, brother or sister, that when we leave this room that you walk into, don't believe the lie that just because it doesn't feel like a blessing doesn't mean it's not a blessing from the Lord. We will all exit this room into difficulty, but let's believe together Let's believe together that God is weaving a grand and beautiful tapestry that in this moment, if we could just zoom out and see his perspective, we would say, yes, Lord, allow that fish to swallow me. Yes, Lord, bring the Ninevites to come and usher us into exile because the deepest desire of our hearts ultimately at the end of the day is we want more dependence upon Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the book of Jonah and the demonstration of just absolute, magnificent, mysterious mercy therein. Somehow, someway, by the, by the sheer goodness of your Holy Spirit, I pray that my brothers and sisters um, are, are somewhat fed today. Um, and God, that we are given the confidence of Christ to... Lord, to believe beyond belief, even despite what the circumstances around us look like, that we would believe beyond belief that you are doing a good work and that that would give us then the stability that we need, Lord, to confidently and joyfully endure as we shine your light in this community for your glory and for our joy. We pray these things. Amen.